Welcome to the JMS Podcast with me, Jorge M. Sanchez. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else who identifies in between. We have a great show. Today's show, main guest is the comedian Eric Summers. He is a great guy, good guy, awesome guy, terrific guy, outrageous guy. He's quite a guy. Uh, We had a great talk about comedy and about many other things, but before we get there, we do have a movie review with Jacob Wheels, the one and only best film critic in San Jose. Many people have fought for that title, and for some reason, Jacob Wheels took <laughs> took the title and named himself that. But uh, he is reviewing the latest film that's giving San Jose some love from Hollywood. That is Winchester, starring Helen Mirren. But before we get his review, and before we get to Eric Summers... Guess what, people? I need to remind you one more time that you can subscribe to the JMS Podcast if you have not already on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also follow the JMS Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and on Twitter. Don't forget to visit the JMSPodcast.com website. And don't forget, don't be shy. You can let me know anything you would like to let me know about at jmspodcast at gmail.com. I always love receiving emails, ideas, Maybe you want a topic for a certain segments that you want my correspondence to tackle. Let me know. Once again, at jmspodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get it on with the show. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. And here is Jacob Wheels with his latest film review. Welcome to another Wheels on Reels with Jacob Wheels, the one and only best film critic of San Jose, California. How That's you doing, right. man? I got the shirt, guys. You got the I shirt. Still got the shirt. And uh, right. and it looks like um, looks like Hollywood is is uh is showing San Jose some love recently. Yeah, man. Fucking a. Like I got the shirt. I don't mean you. I mean about this oh, movie okay. you're about to review. So what movie did you go see? I went to go see. Uh, the uh, is it the Winchester? It's the Win. No, Win- it's it's simply Winchester. I saw Winchester. It's gargantuan, seven-storied structure with no apparent rhyme or reason. Built on the orders of a grieving widow, Sarah Winchester's mind is as chaotic as the house itself. We're worried about her sanity, Doctor Price. Mrs. Winchester, it's a pleasure to finally meet you. Do you believe in ghosts, Dr. Price? I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. I feel their presence. In the air, in the walls, it has found us. Mrs. Winchester, why all the construction? The spirits, killed by the rifle. We lock them away. Thirteen nails seals them in. I will do whatever it takes to protect my family. This spirit has a power we've not seen before. Beautiful dreamer, wake unto me. Starlight and dewdrops are waiting for thee. Sounds of the root world heard in the day. I'm not afraid. You leave my family alone. Your 
will never defeat us. I was actually thinking about uh, actually reviewing the gun itself because that is way more interesting than what I saw. Yeah, which was awkward because I, I called you to see if you done if you watched the movie yet, and you're like you're still in the middle of buying the gun. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing at the gun shop, Jacob? I said review the movie, don't review the gun. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking about changing the, the name of this to uh, Wheels on Gun Barrels. <laughs> But that doesn't sound as good. Maybe in the future. Maybe. But this film, uh, which is made by the Spirit Brothers. Yes. Uh, the, the, these, are, these are a duo. They're, yeah. they're, I believe they're from Australia. I'm I think they're too brothers, sure. too. Yeah, they're definitely brothers. Mm. And I'm, I'm actually familiar with the work. Previously, they did Daybreakers, which I, I liked. Um, I think what they're most known for is for making like low-budget uh, horror films look good. And a, a little out there as well. Yeah. So I guess sure. they made this film based on the local legend right here of the Winchester Mystery House. Yeah. And have you ever been? Yeah, I've been there. I've never been. It's cool, man. It's all right, man. This guy was like walking through and he's like, hey, check it out a door. And he opened up a door and it leads to nowhere. And he's like, hey, check out these steps. There's like these small ass steps. And he's like, let's go up the steps. And guess what? She had a mini door. And it's like, what the fuck is up with this house, man? And you like, paid for that. I paid for that. Just shit. to watch these little steps. These little steps and shit. Did you cool. feel any? Did you feel any spirits? Uh, no. Were you possessed? Are you still possessed? Um, no one wants to possess me. <laughs> no yeah. one wants to be inside me. Let's face it. That's true. That's uh, alive or dead. All right. So, yeah. uh, so this film. Yeah. Where do we start? Uh, I guess I don't know. History of Winchester Mystery House. Mm-hmm. Alright, so if you don't know about the Winchester Mystery House, let me tell you about the Winchester Mystery House. The Winchester Mystery House is a uh, a house that's uh, a mystery. I guess, I guess at this point it's not a mystery house. It's just a house. It's just a mansion. Mm-hmm. Right? So which, is, like, which is located by Santana Row. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's here in San Jose, which is crazy because we live here. And when it said San Jose, I was like, oh shit. Yeah. I'm watching a movie in San Jose, and it's and I should have went to the I should have went to the movie theater near the Winchester Mystery House. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't. It would have been so meta, but whatever. That's All fine. Right. All right. Anyway, so backstory. If you don't know, if you don't know, it's a real thing. All right. So this lady, uh, Miss Winchester, we'll call her because I don't know her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was married to Mister Winchester, who owned the Winchester uh, a, a rifle air uh, company. Yeah, I guess you would say. Uh huh. And then like you know, guns kill people. So when he died, like she got like possession of 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 all the money, and apparently that money was cursed by everyone that's been shot by Winchester, and they told her, hey. Look, we're ghosts. We're good architectures. I want you to build this house for us. So she spends all her money building a fucking house with like 50 stairs and Wait, houses. Wait, hold on. So according to this movie, the ghosts are the architectures. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who knew? Like, do, do they at least have a degree in architecture? They don't, no. They're just winging it? They're just winging it. Yeah, no, okay. So it's like this movie <laughs> is so weird. No wonder this, this mansion is weird. It's like, so fucking weird. Like, it's funny how people are like, oh, she, you know, she's making all these tricks, all these doors to nowhere. It's like, no, it's, 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 just, like it's, just, it's just the ghosts were shitty architects. That's what yeah, it Yeah, they're just like, all right, here's a room. All right, here's a fucking door. Here's some stairs. Yeah. Here's some more fucking doors. I'm a ghost, bitch. Do they get continental breakfast as well? Yeah, probably. So, why all the noise? Why all this destruction? They want me to build, Doctor. The spirits. Killed by the rifle. They guide me. Guide you in drawing building plans? Yes. You see, once their rooms are completed, their presence grows stronger. Hence the house that spirits built. Yes. 
at the chime of midnight, they clamor. The bells summon them. They communicate through plans, drawings. They want me to reconstruct the rooms that they died in. Then they can enter our world. The trouble is I don't always know who it is I'm speaking with. It, it could be some innocent bystander or, or a victim of a crime or someone else. You don't believe any of this, I understand. Ma'am, I do not. I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. Make your assessment, doctor. Say what you feel is the truth about Sarah Winchester. And if that means you lose control of your company. Oh. There are worse things in this world to lose than that, doctor. I just thought it was, I thought that was like the weirdest thing. Like, it's just like, these are like elaborate rooms and shit. And it's like ghosts are making up. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. Like when I get a ghost, I'm glad I can walk yeah. through doors. I'm glad I can levitate shit. And Do I'm you glad even I need can... a room? Uh, apparently, yeah, because you got to sleep somewhere as a ghost. Yeah. Okay. Ghosts need to sleep, bro. I, I guess so. Don't I, hate on the ghost community. You know, the ghost community is like half our audience, bro. I know. I, I got some scathing emails from them lately, mm-hmm. so I gotta watch out. So this movie, Ghost Lives Matter. So this movie got a bit of the history. So how, how did this movie uh, portray Miss Winchester and and her ordeal? Uh-oh. I mean, she's cool, man. She's cool. She's an old lady and stuff. She has arthritis and Which, shit. by the way, I, I I was surprised to hear that the one and only the beautiful, the sexy, like, I have a big crush on her, Helen Mirren took on the role. Yeah, now I thought she was weird. She played, like, what, she played the queen? Yeah, she well, she's, like, you know, a prestigious actress. Yeah, you know that's what I'm saying? What, and so, she's, like, ghost and shit, like, ghost architect. They should have called this movie Ghost Architect. That would have been cool. Uh huh. The movie. Yeah, the movie. She As was Ms. fine. She played like a normal person. I thought she was going to play this haunting role with tortured soul, you know, but it's like, no, she's just like, I hear ghosts. She has an like, accent? No, she doesn't. That's my, that's my accent for every movie. Where oh. I hear ghosts and ghosts are possessing my body and there's fucking wind everywhere and shit. That's a weird San Jose accent. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, it is San Jose. It is yeah. the nineteen ni- the nineteen oh six. Well, she's actually from Connecticut, right? I guess. Is she yeah. from the Connecticut? Yeah, she's from Connecticut, and then she moved over here. She's fine. So it's like a East Coast accent you're pulling there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm well versed in accents. Okay, so what's the plot here? So the plot basically, there's this guy. He's a doctor, and uh, and and Helen Mirren, Miss Winchester, is like, I want you to come over here and diagnose me. No, her company, the company, the Winchester company, is like, we need you to come over here, and uh. And analyze the Miss Winchester because uh, we want to make sure she's crazy. They pretty much busted a um, what's that one movie with um, Will Smith where mm. he's seeing like dead people and they're like the Sixth Sense. No, no, that's Bruce Willis. Oh, did I say Bruce Willis or Will Smith? Uh, Will Smith. That would have been a great movie with Will Smith, by the way. Okay. Uh, anyways, like he's like, let's go to the Winchester house, right? And then he goes to the Winchester house and he's like, I don't believe in fear, but I take opioids. And he's like taping opioids and then there's like moving mirrors and shit. And he's like, oh no, I'm seeing ghost people in on ghost chairs and shit. And it's like, okay. And he's like, you can't take opioids. This is uh, Miss Winchester's like, you can't take opioids. I'm taking your opioids. You can see ghosts now. And then he's like seeing ghosts and shit. Okay, hold on. I want to make sure I follow this right. Yep. It's a doctor. Yes. From We'll call him Dr. Opioid. So the, this heavily drugged doctor yeah. is hired by the Winchester company yeah. to diagnose her as crazy. 
Yeah. To to kind of I guess to cut her off from the money. Yeah, pretty much. And so he's like a, a he's like a high end doctor or right. something so he, of medicine. He, so he visits her, mm-hmm. and you know, and he does not believe in the paranormal. So no, but he stays one night and he sees them. So how does this movie work as a horror film? <sighs> not a good one. Is that a valid, valid expression? Why? Okay, look. Look, I'm not a big fan of... I got I got something else to talk about later, though. About horror movies. Okay. Uh, anyways, it's like... It's it's so predictable as a horror movie. Like, all the scares, you know what's going to happen. Like, the first time they get you, it's like, okay, all right, fine. This guy's like... This guy's taking opioids, and then, like, something scary starts happening. The music starts doing intense, and then he looks over, and there's nothing there. But then he looks back and, oh, my God, there's a ghost there. And it's a jump scare. And you're like, okay, I kind of got scared there. But they do that every fucking time. Mm-hmm. It's like another time, oh, I gotta, I, I'm holding a gun and there's a wall right here and there's freaking music playing. I'm going to go, like, investigate what's on the other side of the wall. He goes on the other side of the wall. Nothing's there. He turns around, fucking ghost and shit, you know? Mm-hmm. It happens every fucking time. And I was pissed off. I, I, I honestly, I've been more scared coming out of my bathroom mm-hmm. than, like, this movie. So this movie's not scary. It's not scary. It's if jump scares are scary, like there's no. It's supposed to be a a, a ghost story, but like it doesn't. It's not a good ghost story. Hmm. It relies too much on 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 jump scares. How were the performances though? <sighs> That's that was scary. Why? Because they they were the, it was like acting the movie. Like they were overreacting. No, they weren't overreacting. You could just tell these people were like acting. Like there's this old guy who's the butler, and he's like. Oh, I'm the old butler. I'm supposed to be scary. Let's go turn, make a left, and then scary music, and then boo. So it's you know? like on the nose. It's very on the nose, man. Uh-huh. It's exposition the movie too. <laughs> yeah, because they're like, oh, you know what pisses me off more? This is what pisses me off more than exposition is audience exposition, where what happens on the screen, the old person has to say that just happened on the screen. <laughs> What? Yeah, there was this old, cute couple, like, sitting, like, old, like, they were very cute together. Oh, this is, so, this is somebody in the theater with this you. This is someone in the theater. Oh. It, yeah, so he's, like, like, this ghost, he's, like, oh, he got shot, like, like it shows him getting shot in the chest, because, spoiler alert, the guy dies and comes back mm-hmm. to life, and that's how he's, quote-unquote, connected to the house, because he got shot by Winchester and technically died. Stupid. Wait, what are you talking about? <sighs> spoiler alert. Dude, you're spoiling this fucking movie. Fuck this movie, man. The last time you spoiled a movie, do you know how many fucking emails I had to deal with? I didn't get any emails. Well, of course you don't. They go through me. Fine, whatever. Okay, spoiler. So, <laughs> it's not even a spoiler. Like, what the fuck is a spoiler nowadays, man? Miss, Mrs. Winchester has a book of everyone who's died from a Winchester. Because, uh-huh. everyone, you know, everyone who dies from the Winchester rifle comes to the house. And uh-huh. he's like, I picked you to come here because you died from the Winchester, but you came back. You know? And it's just like, it's stupid. Anyways, let me get back to my point. So the guy gets shot, right? And in like a flashback. And the old couple in the front, the guy, he leans over to his wife and is like, oh, that guy just got shot. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Maybe she's blind. She's not, you, don't, you don't take a blind person to the movies, man. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe hmm. maybe she's blind and no. her, 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 her loving husband is trying to, you know, detail the movie Look, for I don't her. need people talking during the movie, all right? I don't need people fucking talking in the movie. I just saw that guy get shot. You don't need to tell me that guy just got shot. Okay. Oh, there's there's like there there's a house. It's like yeah, I see a fucking house there. Yeah, yeah. It's windy. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't know why, but wind was a big part. Apparently, San Jose is windy as fuck. Because uh. they were just like, like some of the jump scares were like, there's a window open, there's wind blowing. 
Well, how did this movie do by portraying San Jose? How did they portray it? It didn't portray San Jose. It just portrayed a house. The which, mansion? The mansion, which was a nice mansion. Like, it looked nice, but it's like, come on, man. Why is it so fucking windy? Why is there, Why is this whole movie so fucking windy? Is that your, your final review? I don't know, man. It's just, but what's your final rating on it? I just, I hated how much it's like, they they relied, I, I get why they did this. The same, I guess the cinematography was good, because, you know, the house is, is confusing, right? There's well, it's corners. an interesting subject. It's an it inter- is very interesting, interesting. concept. They shouldn't say. have turned it into a horror movie. They should have turned it into, like, a historical drama. Okay. About a lazy, a lazy, a lady losing her mind. I think it would have been great, especially with Helen Miriam here. Yeah. Like, it would have been great as that one. But no, it's this scary movie where it's like, oh, there's a corner here. This camera's going to slowly pan across, uh, around the corner. Oh, no, ghost. You know? Yeah. Okay. No. So, it's some old bullshit? Some some, some fucking bullshit. Can people at least, you know, let's say people are horror fans. Do you recommend it to them? No. Not even? I don't think so. Well, I don't know. If I catch it on Netflix, do you think it would be a good good time? (sighs) No, no. So no. Th- this is just if, if a shitty s- movie. If you one want star, it, it's like okay, like, not even a star. So before before the rating, let me tell you this: before the rating, I was like, okay, I'm gonna watch this movie. I'm gonna find out movie times, and you know how it says Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I looked it up, you know, Rotten Tomato rating, and I looked it up, and it was like, oh, this is a twenty percent. I'm like, okay, that's not that bad. And then I I left, and like two days later, I came back. I was like, what's the movie time? It was like seventeen percent. And then I left to check the movie time again. It was like 12%. I was like, what the... This movie's just getting worse by the day. Yeah. Ugh. Man. All right. It was fine. No. You know, I go to... It sounds like it wasn't fine. It's... Whatever, man. I wasted like... Like... Like I said earlier, the the scariest part of this movie is that I paid 11 bucks for it. So, Winchester. Not a good film. No, it's not that great of a film. Jacob Wheels here did not enjoy it. I didn't. Look, Jorge. I've had some bad movie theater experiences. But this was just a bad experience from the beginning. Why? Okay, so I go in the movie theater, right? First of all, no one's in there, all right? And then, like, okay, so the, the lights go down, and, you know, it says, like, welcome to, the, welcome to the movie theaters. You know, please silence your cell phones, right? So it stays on that screen for, like, 20 minutes while you hear, like, Medea, uh, not Medea, Tyler Perry, like, movie playing in the background, uh-huh. and it's like, but you still see silence your cell phones, but you hear like all this drama and bullshit. You know what I mean? How do you know it's a Tyler Perry movie? Because I've seen that. I've been to the movies. I've seen this commercial like 20 oh. times. It's the one where it's like the raindrops. It's like bloop, bloop. Okay. I like, I murdered him because he was a, a horrible person. Bloop, bloop. You know what I mean? No. Okay. Well, I've seen. I'll take your word for it. I've seen the commercial a thousand times. <clears throat> but I didn't like this movie. If you can, if you didn't catch it. All right, all right. Well, Jacob, thank you for reviewing it, yeah. and thank you for the sacrifice. Look, oh, I got a challenge for the listeners. What's that? All right, if they want to get my shirt, this is what they got to do. Gotta what, wait, up. wait, your, your, your best film my critic? Best film, of, yeah. But then if you give your shirt away, how would people know you're I'm the best I'm not giving it away. I'm challenging them to take it from me. So if you want to take it from me, what you got to do is you got to build a house. got to build 50 fucking ghost rooms in it. You got to hide my shirt uh, in one of those rooms. And then you could become the the world's best film critic, or the San Jose's. Well, it's been done once before by Miss Winchester. I think someone else can do it as well, so it's possible. No. <laughs> no. All right, Jacob, thank you for coming. Have you seen the Winchester film? 
Please let me know what you think. Do you agree? Do you disagree with Jacob Wheels and his review? You can let me know at jmspodcast at gmail.com. Looking forward to those emails. All right, we're moving on to our main guest. Today's guest is the comedian Eric Summers. Uh, he cracks me up all the time. He's, he has a great personality behind him, real nice guy, and really funny. And I think the conversation we had was a really good chat about comedy. I think you really went right at it. You're like, okay, Jorge, every comedian you talk about comedy. But I think me and, and Eric really hit a core about like taste in comedy and, and possibly the landscape of kind of stuff that comedians have to deal with uh, on certain open mics and so on. So I really hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, it was, I, I believe it's very insightful. And um, once again, follow the JMS podcast on social media. Uh, even one better, you can support this podcast by donating on Patreon. Keep this thing going. I, I Anything helps from a dollar to five dollars. But hey, I could use a hundred dollars here and there. You can support it by visiting Patreon and search for JMS podcast and donate. You can also go to the website and there's a donation link right there for you. All right, here is the one and only Eric Summers. Everyone but me clamoring for attention and acting like they were on stage. It was brutal. But when did you make this podcast? Uh, we never aired it. It was when I was in L.A., probably five or six years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. What was the name of it? Uh, we never came up with a name. <laughs> we just were four comics who used to hang out outside the mics, and we thought we were very entertaining, and, uh-huh. oh, we should just record this. And uh, Which I think it's uh, I think it's common. Like I think that's how a lot of these um, comedy-based podcasts get started, right? It's like, hey, we have interesting conversations. We're funny. I'm sure people would love to hear about us. But I was under no such delusion. I figured come in with a few topics and express your opinions about them and be interesting and hope it's yeah. funny. And and they thought that I was that kid in school who asks for extra homework. You know, come in with some preparation. Why would you do that? Well, were you the one running it, essentially? Were you the producer of it? I wasn't. No. No. Mm-mm. But you, you did the extra work that needed to be done. I came in. I said, should I bring in a few topics for us to discuss? And they all said yes. And then we got there and... They made fun of me for bringing in a few topics for us to discuss. Oh, you became the subject of, of the episode. Um, I don't know. I don't. No, I wouldn't say that. But every time we would, every time uh, the discussion would devolve into someone cracking horrible jokes, mm-hmm. I would sit back and disengage, and and uh, it was just a a bad. I think it's a bad way to run a podcast. The way you do it, one on one. Right. Everyone knows when they're supposed to talk. Oh, I did. Uh, that's right. I did Alex Love's podcast. Uh, oh, here's why that's funny. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah, it's funny. I was there recently uh, okay. for someone else's show because hers is no longer running at FCC Radio, right? Right. Which in itself is a weird location, right? Um, I mean, I don't think that matters to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because for me, you know, I want to make sure I create a nice, comfortable, welcoming environment for the guest. You know, mm-hmm. from the parking lot to, to to the house to the studio, mm-hmm. and hopefully throughout the conversation. And over there, in San Francisco, where it's at, it's like this rinky dink building with like a super old school creaky elevator. Mm-hmm. That I wasn't too sure I was going to come out of it alive. You know, I'm waiting for this thing to just <laughs> drop at any moment. And the studio's located in the basement. 
Okay. And it's a little creepy looking basement, right? Yeah. Is it just me? Am I? I mean, I'm about content. I mean, I wouldn't care if we held it in someone's garage. If if the conversation is interesting, the podcast can be very interesting. I mean, Mark Maron literally records his podcast in a garage, and it's the most riveting podcast I've ever heard, week in and week out. Yeah. But I think it's great that you try and create a welcoming situation. That is nice. That's thoughtful. Well, 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 here's the thing that annoyed me to talking about the FCC radio incident I had recently was that, you know, and I can put names out. I don't think he's going to listen to this, but we're there and I'm waiting for the, you know, for the host and I'm nervous, you know, Mm -hmm. and for me, the host is just like an open mic host where they run the show. They determine the speed of this thing that we're about to do, whether Mm -hmm. it's a mic or a podcast. And this guy was, Oh, yeah, go I'm for it. I'm just turning off my phone. Yeah, yeah it's, I don't mind. I prefer it, actually. But this guy, the, the host of the podcast I went to do, FCC Radio, mm-hmm. was drinking like from the bottle of wine, which he spilled on his shirt. And he had this kind of like, like you know, I don't care attitude, like, you know, free-loving, you know, I'm just a chill guy, and let's just drink and talk about whatever. And for me, you know, I'm like, I, you know, I like my shit to be structured and at least mm-hmm. somewhat professional looking. And I'm like, this guy has like, like access to this amazing equipment I can only dream of having. Mm-hmm. And he's just like acting like it's no big deal. And, and it came to a point where the guests were actually, you know, running the show more than he was. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just ranting at this point. Uh, but but it, it, I think it goes back to what you were saying about starting your own first podcast where it's mm-hmm. like, it's it's a lot harder than people think. I mean, it's easy to produce. You know, you record and you put it out there. Mm-hmm. But to make it something consistent and, like you said, content is king, uh, it, it's very, it, it takes a while to really get the flow of it. Well, I happen to notice, I mean, I really don't listen to podcasts from comics. Why? Um, Why is that? Because my two experiences before this were there were too many people in the room uh, no one was even allowed to make a point without getting interrupted. And it you couldn't get in depth on anything. And people also are guarded with multiple people in the room. When you talk one-on-one with someone, if if they're feeling you, if you can sense that they're understanding what you're saying, you're going to give them the goods. Like you'll, you'll, you'll say things that will maybe uh, enlighten that person or you're trying to. But with four or five people with different personalities and and you know different agendas you, it's you have to be a little bit more guarded mm-hmm. and especially with comics who can be so obnoxious and mm-hmm. and and derail whatever point you're trying to make uh, I, but once you booked me on this podcast I listened to six of them this week to, to figure out what I was getting myself into I'm a little nervous and from the first moment no you're it's brilliant of what oh, you're doing you. <laughs> I mean I th- I listen to comics who I know and I think I know pretty well uh-huh. and I listen to you interview them and wow you find out who they they really are to an extent some are more guarded than others right um, which tells me you're very dangerous me what <laughs> because you may get me to reveal things I don't really want out there but uh, well, but I'm a pretty open guy well, give me my, like, I'm not coming here with an agenda you know I'm not trying to Howard Stern anybody you well, know? why are you doing the podcast. But, well, for, it, it, the reasons have changed over time. Okay. Initial reasons were just like you in L.A. with your friends of like, hey, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Me, I was going through this uh, 
sheer panic when I was turning 25, which was three years ago, mm-hmm. where I was like, I, I have not done shit with my life. A quarter life of a century just passed, and I haven't done shit. And for some strange reason, I decided to do a podcast. Okay. It just came out of nowhere. And the initial idea was just to do with me and my friends who are comedians and so on. And, you know, and of course, I was very influenced by WTF and, and others. So I was like, you know, let's just do that. You know, it's something immediate, something fast. And, you know, I could somewhat uh, be over this panic-stricken phase I'm going through. Mm-hmm. And we did it. And we had, like, the shittiest mic and, you know, a laptop. It was nothing fancy like it is now. Right. But, like... It, it kind of changed when I started having musicians and artists and a bunch of other people and then hearing feedback of others going like, hey, man, I never knew about this person in the community. I never knew this was happening over here. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, you know what? Maybe there is something here. And then again, I, I then it changed to like, you know, it's not we don't really have hour long conversations with anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like you go to an open mic, you meet a, a comedian and you, you're reserved because especially if you're in a mic, you're not familiar with anybody you, you don't really want to talk about yourself you're just there you know waiting for your time but it's like you know what if i take people from that open mic like yourself mm-hmm. and sit you here for one hour lock the door and no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> and just talk it out you know and, and really get to know the person you know so mm-hmm. I, I really when people are like you know you, you just made your initials the name of the podcast which is a mistake on my part because it's not about me it's about you it's about you eric all about you well today it is but no it's about the host it, because you're going to tune in if, the, if a host continually delivers interesting um, discussions then yeah. you'll tune in to listen to that host and give him a chance even if you don't recognize the guest or necessarily have an interest in you what re- that re- guest make does. me blush too much right well how, how about we change the it's true and before <laughs> before we get off i don't i want to say something about alex loves podcast yeah, which I enjoyed. I, I love I Alex. Yeah. I think she's super funny, super interesting, super smart. It's just the dynamic of having four comics in the room. It felt like uh, one or two kind of took it over. Mm-hmm. And then you don't feel like volunteering information because I don't want to interrupt someone else. Right. So it just... Uh, it's, it's a different dynamic, you're right, when yeah. there's different people mm-hmm. and different personalities and... You're all yeah. trying to make a point. Everybody has a different point, and some people are assholes about you know, <laughs> to trying to you know make a, a dig at you. And but, I wouldn't even say they're being assholes. They're trying to be funny, which it's comics, so we're we're supposed to dig at each other. I think a little bit. Yeah. But on a podcast, it may not work. They should call it a comedy show or comedy. Show. <laughs> it might be. I don't know. <laughs> well, Eric, first question I want to ask you there is, what were you doing in LA? I didn't know you were in LA. Well, I started in LA. I've lived in LA my whole life. What part of LA? Uh, I was born in Pasadena. I went to school at UCLA, lived there for four years. Mm-hmm. Moved down to Newport Beach for a year, Huntington Beach, Irvine for a couple of years, North Hollywood for 10 years. So you grew up right, right in that, you know, Hollywood mix of LA, you know, glamour mm-hmm. and stuff, right? Yeah. In, in the suburbs. And what, were your parents in the industry? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, my dad was in, uh, he was a buyer for a, a um, wholesale company and then what kind of stuff were they wholesaling garbage I mean <laughs> inflatable rafts they would sell to drugstores like Rite Aid I mean anything uh-huh. of doormats right and then when I was uh, I think 12 that job went away when the company got bought out and then he was just a hustler there were four kids so he he bought goods downtown and sold them at the swap meet he would go to businesses and wholesale. He was just a hustler. He never had another employer his lo- the rest of his life. 
Did he prefer it that way? Uh, I think he would have liked to have gone back to a big company, but my dad's kind of a quirky character. He's a big personality, and so he, he loves dealing with customers. So he was good uh, doing the swap meet and going to small businesses and wholesaling. Did he have like a bit of a showmanship quality to him? He was big. <laughs> he was a big personality. Mm-hmm. Kind of kind of uh, maybe a little too outgoing. But one on one he would entertain you and he he was good at identifying products that people like. Mm-hmm. So he was able to sell products. Uh, and, yeah. and is that why I got you into sales? You mentioned to me in, in, a, in a message. You know what? Maybe. Uh, I um, got it. When I was in high school, he would let me take some inflatable rafts down to the gas station on the corner and sell them. And you could make as much in a day selling rafts at the gas station as my friends who were working at, you know, box as box boys would make in a week. Right. You could right. make it in a day. And then when I got into college, I would, around Christmas time, go to a swap meet yeah. with my own setup and make a few hundred dollars, which again is like a week's pay to a teenager. Now hold on, what is an inflatable raft? Like you how, know, because I'm thinking of, of of like those canoeing boat, not canoe, but like now nah, pool toys, like a raft that you would sit on in a in a swimming pool. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you just go to the gas station and people actually buy them from you? Yeah. Well, he had a deal worked out with the guy at the gas station. Was it by the beach or something? Or? No, it was in Pasadena, but it was on a very busy corner, so it got a lot of traffic, and people would just pull in and buy it, and, uh, you know, we we could do a few hundred dollars more than that in a day, and we'd get to keep the profit. My dad always let the us keep the profit. My brothers did it, too. Uh-huh. So he, he um, yeah, gave me that entrepreneurial spirit, and then when I got into college, I worked for a ski association and sold... Uh, memberships at conventions uh-huh. at ski conventions and then as soon as I graduated college I went into insurance sales and did that for 20 years is skiing common in in LA I don't think so right um or how would it work you're like are you, it's part of a ticket to Aspen or something or? no there's there are resorts near LA within an hour of LA the better ones are going to be three or four hours away but there are plenty of skiers people love to ski and lift tickets you know even 30 years ago were very expensive so if you joined this membership, you would get discounted lift tickets. Mm-hmm. And um, wow, this is so riveting. <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting. Um, anyway, so I sold. I, I was in sales. I was in sales. Is that what you studied in college as well? No, I was an English major. I loved literature. And for my senior project in high school, I made a comedy video. I've, I've wanted to do comedy since I was seven or eight. What, what's happening in seven or eight for you to be interested in comedy? Uh watching MASH and Good Times and Man. Chico and the Man. These were my favorite shows. Uh-huh. And as I look back, um, I think the reason I, I, I liked those shows more than, say, Happy Days mm-hmm. was because these were people in trying situations, like wartime, and all they do was crack jokes. They supported each other, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in the projects, growing up, uh, you know, with very disadvantaged but still enjoying your life just laughing and cracking jokes all the time is that related how you felt about your life at the time yeah was- i mean it was a struggle there were four kids in our household and we never had we always had you know we never worried about a roof over your head or food or things like that but you know i never went skiing until i was 18 we didn't do the expensive things we took you know vacations were camping or was your mother also working no she stayed home mm-hmm. very traditional four kids i mean all boys 
No, uh, baby girl. Baby I'm, girl. Yeah. Are you, I know you're going to ask me if I'm the middle child because that's what you do. <laughs> well, there were two middle children, and yes, I was the older of the two middle children. But I hey, do, my theory still stands. I though. don't agree with your theory at oh. all. I really don't. Uh, uh, a lot of the best comics are are the baby in the family, the really? ones who are absolutely who were allowed to just do whatever they want. They were, you know, irrepressible. Uh-huh. And uh, but, but but maybe you're right. But I feel the comics who want to say something are part of the middle child. You know. Oh, that's <laughs> like you as the middle child. Did you feel you had the opportunity pretty... to say something compared to the older? Always. Or the, or the In fact, I was my older brother was very shy and was four years older. So it was like I was the oldest of the sec, not the second group, but uh, my brother was four years older, and then and then I was only two years older than my younger brother, and he was only a year and a half older than my sister. So we were. Mm-hmm. sort of grouped and what happened was I sort of branched off with my older brother and we were like the two older ones and then you had the two younger ones so I got more attention I got the most attention mm-hmm. were you the troublemaker of the, of the four? there were no troublemakers no really? your mom did a good job I guess yeah yeah yeah. you, you didn't even feel like the black sheep? <laughs> no there were no black sheep oh. everyone my parents were were all the same everyone's equal and uh-huh. yeah Okay, so where did it all go wrong? Why are you doing comedy? What the? Well, but like I said, I loved comedy. Like we loved laughing. We grew up watching the sitcoms, and uh, my parents had Richard Car or uh, Richard Pryor albums and George Carlin albums and Don Rickles. So comedy was a big part of our they, household. They let you listen to Richard Pryor at a young age. Okay, uh, no, they let me listen to Bill Cosby at a young age. Oh, that's kind of weird, considering uh, what happened. Uh, you know what? You don't even get me started. But on at that. the time, though, I'm sure you know. Yeah, and great. still today, you can listen to all of Bill Cosby's work, and it'll be good for you. Uh-huh. As will uh, Louis C.K.'s and uh, Woody Allen movies. These are all brilliant, sensitive artists who had an out of control libido. Mm-hmm. I don't condone. Obviously, you don't condone what they did, but the 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 work you respect. I mean, it's not just work. It's talking about the human condition. Like you, if you can can listen to Bill Cosby talk about family and not identify with eighty percent of it, I don't think you're telling the truth. He talks about real stuff that happens. Now, what he was doing when he wasn't performing, you know, is like it's reprehensible. Mm. But these were very intelligent, sensitive people, and their work reflects it. And I stand oh. by my opinion that it's great. Uh-huh. So as a kid, you're you're just taking in Cosby for the most part. Uh, no, I mean we listened to Steve Martin albums, and I mean by the time I was ten or eleven, whenever my parents left the house, we were playing George Carlin and Richard Pryor and and all these Red Fox. I mean, it didn't matter. Red Fox? Yeah, yeah. Don Rickles. Because funny is funny, and yeah. I the vulgarity. It, if you're 11, the vulgarity isn't going to affect you anyway because you're not... You don't know what's going, what they're even talking about. Right, exactly. But yeah. you know funny. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For me. So is, at that point, you, you grasp the idea of comedy writing, you mm-hmm. know, because it seems you gravitated mostly towards the comedy shows, right? Um, like comedy TV shows. I wanted to be a sitcom writer. Sitcom writer. Yeah. That was the dream. That was the dream. I is mean, that what geared you towards English? To study English, to study writing. No, I also liked reading. I liked reading from I would say eighth or ninth grade. I was reading for fun, Stephen King novels, and just anything that 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 could transport me. Uh, and I I loved stories. I loved characters. I I don't know. I was that kid too. I I, yeah. I assume so. I think I, you and I, I are I, very close. Yeah, I, I was in mentality. I was yeah. the weird one out for sure. But but you say you were the weird one. 
but what, why you, do you say that? Well, maybe for us, we're not so weird to, towards each other, but yeah. But at the time, I was like, dude, I was that weird kid just reading a book, walking around the playground. <laughs> during but recess. how is that different than, say, watching movies or videos? It's the uh, stories, it, it's projected in your mind, but I think if you love film mm-hmm. or television, uh, reading is the same thing. Well, I, I do believe that re- reading should be a fundamental layer in anybody's creative work, mm-hmm. whether it is comedy, TV, writing, or, or film, or music, because uh, I think when you're ingesting other people's words and really using your imagination, mm-hmm. I think that could help a lot with your own work and uh, the creative process. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I, I think reading is pretty fundamental. You're very professorial, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could talk as smart as you. <laughs> but, but, you know, but when you're at a you know, but you don't really know this stuff till later. You don't really reflect about this stuff till later. When you're just, when you're a child and just reading anything you can. Mm-hmm. Like, what kind of stuff were you reading? Stephen King novels, The Hardy Boys, Encyclopedia Brown. Mysteries, I liked mysteries, too. Mm-hmm. Um, things that made you try and figure stuff out. Mm. Um, mm, what about you? What were you reading? Uh, uh, there was, like, the... the Boxcar Kids, mm-hmm. so there are mysteries. Yeah, a lot of mysteries. You're right. They're they're, yeah. they're very similar. Um, and then I was never into the horror ones, like like Stephen King stuff. I was never. Well, really. that's the thing. Uh, Stephen King has horrific horrific events occur in his books, mm-hmm. but really they're character studies. Mm-hmm. What Stephen King does is he will put you, the reader, in the position of the protagonist, and he'll be just living his life, and he will throw an obstacle in front of you you love your cat your cat just died oh i can take my cat and i can bury him in the ground in this special place and he'll come back to life why wouldn't i do that Mm. and why wouldn't you you love your cat someone tells you it'll come back to life so you go and do it and your cat comes back but now he's a demon (laughs) and he kills your brother right and, and now, and then you bury your brother, and now you can bring your brother back to life, yeah, and he's or a not. Demon. <laughs> and you feel now you're you're caught in this guilt situation. Well, look, yeah. every you're reading these stories, he makes you the bad guy, right? But you're not the bad guy; you're the good guy. And I think what Stephen King's message is: there are no bad guys and good guys. There are these decisions that we make for certain reasons. We don't think about the repercussions or the consequences, and look what can happen. So in your life, maybe think about stuff before you do it. Mm. And um, I don't know. I, do, I find do, it fascinating. Do, do you ever, you know, get concerned about how some of his literature is translated into film? Because it's, it's kind of hit or miss for me. Like so some of the movies based on his books are good. Yeah. Some are like, ah, I don't know what's going on here. I've never. Or even well, the, even miniseries. The thing is, uh, as a rule, books where you're inside the character's head and they're weighing decisions and making decisions and based on how they're perceiving the circumstances and the people around them. That is never going to translate to film because film is going to show you action. It can't really show you thought. And thought is what causes all the problems. (laughs) It's what you need, but so no, they're, they're, they're terrible. But films based on his books where I haven't read the books, some of them are great, like uh, the original Shining, Mm-hmm. With Jack the, Nicholson, the Kubrick, yeah, Kubrick, who uh-huh. I'm also a huge fan of, just in general. Um, the Dead Zone, 
uh, was another one I thought was fantastic. Um, I like Pet Cemetery. I like that film as well. Uh, it seemed uh, campy after having read the book, which uh, is what they all seem, uh-huh. because there's no depth there. I mean, it's a cliche. The book is always better than the movie. Yeah. The book is, al- the book is always better than the movie. <laughs> I do have one guilty pleasure when it comes yeah. to Stephen King uh, uh, movie that's based on his work, which he actually directed, was Maximum Overdrive. Haven't seen that one. <laughs> it, it's so 80s, you know, campy. Uh, and people shit on it for you know looking so campy, but I, I liked it when I when I watch it. It's kind of guilty pleasure. Yeah, it sounds it's, it's, like it. it. It's I don't think you should be proud of that. I haven't seen it, but <laughs> well, it's, it's a lot like it. You know the the, the original TV miniseries. Yeah, I, I mean, re- yeah. you look at it now and you're like, uh, oh, I don't know. But when you're a kid and you're watching that, it's fascinating. Yeah. I haven't read the book it though. I gotta admit that. Well, here's another thing you have to remember. I'm almost double your age, mm-hmm. so. Your experiences, I mean, you saw it when you were a kid, and if I saw it when I was 32 or 33, and I've already been watching, you know, uh, Kubrick films, uh-huh. it's probably, probably, I mean, Stephen King, he overwrites his characters, which I love, because I feel like the more he writes, the better I get to know them. But watching someone have a seven minute conversation in film, I mean, you want to pull your hair out. Right? Right. So he's not going to be able to... Get, but he still writes that way. Even when, and when he directs it, uh, it's just too much. It's too much. <laughs> it's too much for me. It sounds like you, you have the uh, the stuff in you to be a writer. Do you ever consider doing that? Have I ever considered it? Uh, I only tried to break in for 20 years. If you go to my website, ericsummers.com, you'll find that I have spec scripts from most of the better sitcoms from the 80s and 90s. And if you ask me, I was able to capture the voice and the style of each sitcom. Mm. But I never was able to get an agent or have the right contacts to, you know, um, get my work in front of people I feel would have appreciated it. When did you get into uh, specs uh, screenwriting? Well, I started in insurance right out of college, and I was 21. And within a year, I started doing stand-up. For one year, I did it. And I realized, you know what? It's too much work. It's too much doing the same material over and over again. It was uninteresting. What year are we talking about here? 91. How was the landscape at the time? Um, Comedy landscape where you're at. It was down in L.A. I started at uh, the comedy store. Yeah. And it was loud. It was was the Wayans brothers were there on a regular basis, but not the good ones, not Damon and Keenan. It was the two young ones. Mm -hmm. And... It was just very loud, very vulgar, and um, not at all what I would want to do. I would want to do stuff that was closer to Seinfeld back then. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't get noticed at all. And I was terrible, too. So I gave it up to pursue screenwriting, and I wrote spec scripts and spec scripts and spec scripts, one after the next. And I would be so proud of them. And even today, I go back and read them, and I say, this would have been a great episode of Seinfeld or The Simpsons. Did you have a mentor or two to kind of guide you? I had no mentor. I took a couple of classes at UCLA Extension because I would already graduated from UCLA in 88. Yeah, which is a good school to learn about screenwriting, by the way. Yes, but I was a lit major. And I don't regret that at all because I discovered all my favorite authors mm-hmm. while... Uh, if anything, you probably have more of an advantage than the more more uh, experienced screenwriters if you're coming in from literature, I feel. Yeah, I would think so. You know... Um, but but you, you were studying in L.A., UCLA. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. like, right, this is what I want to do. Looks like comedy you weren't going for, the stand-up. 
when I was at UCLA, I wanted to get my degree so I could get out of school and make money at some job, not knowing what the job would be, period. And I assumed it would probably be some sort of sales-related job. Because that's what you grew up with. Kind of. And you were, I guess, comfortable in that field. I was. I was comfortable talking to people, and I was a very honest person. So I felt like when I sit down with anyone to sell them something, they're going to understand. I'm honest. I'm going to lay it all out for them, and they'll make the decision. And that is the most naive position I've ever held in my life. It, what I discovered yeah. selling insurance was I was... I was I would be prepared and I would lay everything out and then some guy would come in behind me and just lie and he would sell them, you know, tell them what they wanted to hear and they would always do business with him. I was in the, always in the bottom 25% of performer of per, yeah, performers at the insurance agency because I wouldn't do what they had to do and they would just look at it as look, this is combat. It's the salesman versus the customer. Which is just the antithesis of the way I look at life. Like, I'm not a communist, but I feel like we should all get along. We yeah. should look out for each other. Right. And, uh, yeah, so, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a creative spirit, too. Right, you. so two years into that, I started pursuing comedy. Uh, for one year of stand-up, and then seven, eight, nine, I don't know, ten years of writing scripts and trying to get them out. In fact, it's more like 20, because I never stopped up until I quit insurance after 20 years, just quit it and took a substitute teaching position so that I could pursue stand-up at night. Right. You yeah. need something to pay the bills. While you Not really, because I got married. Um, my wife and I were making the same amount of money when we got married. Oh. This is interesting. I was in sales. She's in marketing. And flash forward six or seven or eight years later, whatever it was, she was making triple what I was making because I was still the wrong kind of person to be doing sales and it's like all right we're gonna have a kid or not have a kid because time's up right so you, the, the family just got here it's that's okay. cool Don't worry about it. and so you know um i i cashed that in to not cashed it in but i quit insurance became a sub started doing stand-up and that was in 2008 how did your wife feel about this by the way she wasn't thrilled <laughs> She's like, we're starting a family. You're out there doing mics? Yeah. Was that the kind of the talks you guys were having? Something like that. Well, I, I was convinced that this time around I was going to give it everything I have and become a big success. Mm. And uh, and look at us now, Jorge. Um, <laughs> There's still time. Don't worry. Th there is. But you know what? I tell you what, man. When you hit 50, yeah. it is the most liberating thing in your life. Nothing phases me now. Nothing bothers me now. I just feel free to just go for it, pursue it. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I stay home with our daughter, and uh, which I think is important. Like, I know that the two working parent household is the standard, and kids go into daycare at eight months old. But if you don't have to do that, I feel like right. don't have kids unless you can at least spend a lot of quality time with them. Right. That's my position. I know there's lots of it makes sense to do it. Because, yeah. you know, every uh, child psychologist says that the development years of a person mm -hmm. is their childhood. I mean, it would make sense to spend the most of your time you can with them at that stage. Mm -hmm. Learning to learn about everything. And you got these children who are growing up with parents working and the nanny raises them. And I think that creates a lot of disconnection 
and communication between the parents and the child. But that's a whole different period yeah. where we talk about that point. And I haven't, I haven't done the research. It just seems instinctive to me. But maybe that's because of how I was raised. Mm-hmm. So, right. Hmm. So yeah. So I stayed home with the kid. I did substituting and and um, stand up at night. And then once we had our daughter, I stayed home and did stand up at night a little bit because my wife is a workaholic she'll work 70 hours a week and um which is great right you know like she she gets the job done and she's really climbed the corporate ladder by doing a fantastic job um and for anyone who doesn't have kids i don't think you can understand it is it's not a full-time job it's beyond that it is like living in a room with rattlesnakes in that you have to be constantly aware because at any time, if you if you look away for a minute, they could wander over to an electric socket and stick their tongue in. Mm-hmm. They're naturally uh, curious that way. So anyway, um, for the last five years, while she, she's in first grade now, I didn't even want to go out and do stand-up more than one or two times a week because I wanted someone there constantly. Uh, but now she's getting older. Her grandparents are in the area, can watch her a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So now I feel like I'm ready to start. But by this time, this hard. By, yeah. the, by this time we started your family, did you stop writing spec scripts, or was that something you kept continue doing? Yeah, no, I stopped writing spec scripts. Okay, but they're still out there. Right. You, All, you, you passed them around to different agencies. Yes, I've passed them around, and they're up on the web now. You know, I feel like if I can um, make any headway in stand up, right. Which has now really become my first love. Like, if you were to ask me any time up until, say, three years ago, what would be my ideal dream job, it would be executive producing the next Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. But now, I feel like now my dream job would be to do two weekends a month touring the country, doing theater shows, doing stand-up. I Mm -hmm. mean, the liberation now of delivering your message the way you want to deliver it is just... So, I don't know, it's so liberating and so freeing and so, I don't know. I'm sure it's the same dream you have. Or no, are you still want to be a, be a writer? Yeah, I, I think that's the top of my my list is, is uh, make a living off my writing, whether it's film or or other. But, uh, but comedy is right up there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with comedy, why? It's because it's so immediate, you know. You, you, get, you get the opportunity to really work your material tonight if you wanted to yeah. you know I suppose when you're writing you're constantly editing and it takes months and years and you, and you don't never know if, you know if it goes to the right person or not will they get it will the crowd get it right. is, is this financially viable well in comedy just go up there and you figure all that shit out on stage yeah. and at that point it just becomes a, an endurance game and, and, and a craft game of like you know make sure you're honing in your skills but the great thing uh, that I admire about you is that you got involved with this, all this writing work and I feel that puts you in a great position to be because once you do hit it big, you have things to offer. Right. You know? And and that and that's something uh, I, I forgot who I talked to about this, but or where I heard it from. But these days, the, the game has changed with the internet as far as any kind of entertainment, creative work, mm-hmm. uh, where you no longer have to be just good in one thing. You know, like that saying. You know, it could be a jack of all trades, but mm-hmm. a master of none. The internet has blown that theory out of the fucking water. Because these days, if you really want to create opportunities for yourself to be seen for your work, you got to be well adverse in these different mediums mm-hmm. of performance, of writing, of producing. 
right? And mm-hmm. I think, and that's something uh, a lot of comics, especially here locally, because we're not familiar with the industry up mm-hmm. here as much, uh, forget is that you may be the funniest person here, and let's say a producer goes, hey man, I like your stuff, I want to produce your stuff. Do you have any web series you're working on? Do you have any scripts or any movie vehicles mm-hmm. or, or any anything that's just... Because the, the money to put a special out there is not as much anymore. Right. It, it's more of like, you know, a long-term game of like how much can this person bring to the table long-term-wise. And then and some comments are like, you know, I don't want to do that. So And a lot of times if they're comfortable being at the club level or they get to travel with the club, that's mm-hmm. fine. You know, but there's a lot of comics who, you know, they're, they, their goal is to be in movies. Their goal is to be in a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you really got to start making, you know, foundations of being well-versed in several mediums of entertainment. Does that make sense? Oh, it completely makes sense. It's very, very discouraging to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but, you know, but there's something to be said um, as far as your journey so far. Because uh, it, it sounds like you're always working on something. I, I, think, I think that's important. I, I think it's important to to, to persevere, and, and and really just keep working at what you love to do. Uh, now, at what point did you move from LA to up here? It was um, December of two thousand twelve, and our daughter was a year and a half. And the reason we moved was um, my wife was able to get a significant promotion in marketing by moving to a company up here. Hmm. And uh, it, but really, it was an absolute godsend in that um, my my mom passed away ten years ago, and my dad's very old. He's like, he's eighty five. Um, so when you have a small child, to have family nearby to help, well, Cindy's parents are they love kids and they love helping. So it made um, uh, being a stay-at-home dad much easier because you'd get that break once a week that she would have a stay, uh, a sleepover and that would be the time that I could you know just for once a week really focus on stand up and keeping my you know my feet wet because I knew that regardless of how good I got between 2012 and now I wouldn't take an offer that was going to take me to LA for a TV show or touring with another comic because I just wouldn't do that to my kid um, so I was able to get that hosting gig at our little theater. So once a week, I oh, could go right. up and... Who else was, was running that? Uh, Pacheco, Teddy, right? Well, Pacheco ran Saturday nights. Teddy Hall and I shared Friday nights. Mm. And um, it was great. It was sort of the best of both worlds. I could do an open mic and my show and work on my stand-up. And my primary job of staying home... Um, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, do you, what were some differences you felt that get to readjust when you were going from the L.A. comedy scene to the Bay Area comedy scene? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I had one friend up here, Ethan Orloff, who was also a comic. He had done a couple of years in L.A., and I met him in whatever, 2010, 2011, 2009 then he moved back so he was able to introduce me to the scene a little bit give me some names of people who ran mics like Pete Munoz who was doing uh, Pizza Depot back then and uh, slowly you just work your way in it's not it's not very be- different that was before my time what year was that like around that well 
because Cindy's family is up here. Yeah. I've been coming up here since 2000. And when oh. I started 2008, even though I was doing every most of my comedy down there, periodically would come up here and find an open mic. And um, once Ethan moved back and once it was clear that I was moving up here, he introduced me to Pete and some other um, mic hosts. And I was able to you know, find them both in the South Bay and up in San Francisco. And I will tell you, there's a, there's a pretty big difference between the scene in L.A. and the scene up here. Hmm. In that, for some reason, you guys seem to have South Bay comics and San Francisco comics, which is insane to me because you're a half an hour apart. I, I don't, I don't, I don't care why you would stay in one area versus right. Why, why do you do that? Why do you guys do that? I wish I had the answer. I don't know. I, I, I think, um, I think that maybe there's just so much um, tribalism here in a, such a small area. Hmm. As far as having to uh, pride of where you're from and you want to create, you know, I don't know. I really don't know why. Yeah, that's a very good good observation though. It's it's because you know, in the big picture, I, I do get annoyed with a lot of people kind of pushing this whole I mean for example this whole this is San Jose brand and we are San Jose performers or whatever yeah. uh, and, and also or, like the Sacramento per- performers yeah. we're, the, we're from the we're from Modesto yeah. like we're rep- from represent this and that and that you know fuck the San Francisco fuck that I'm like does it really fucking matter at the I mean, end have of the day you, have you ever watched a comedy special that you liked and, and, and thought to yourself oh where is he from <laughs> I mean, it makes no difference where you're from or where you are. Funny is funny. Right, right, right. right have right. something interesting and funny to say. Um, and uh, But it's funny you say that because L.A. Is, is just as big, like the right. county and everything. And people right. seem to, you know, not care as much of like, oh, you're from Pasadena. Oh, or, my God. They hate you if you're from L.A. That's what they have in the same. If you're a comic trying to break in in L.A., they hate you. And if you're from L.A. up here, they hate you. But up here, they hate you because San Francisco has this rivalry with L.A., Uh which, by the way, L.A. does not have with San Francisco. Everyone in L.A. loves San Francisco and the Bay Area. We don't understand why you guys hate us. (laughs) It's fine. It's like Boston and New York. Boston hates New York. New York really doesn't care about Boston. Right, right. I I don't get it. The the bigger fish could care less about the smaller fish trying to bite its feet. Right. Right. In L.A., the comedy scene is made from people from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. So you go to a mic, and I would be the, out of 50 comics, I'd be the only comic there who was from Southern California. Because they're from Boston, they're from Texas, they've all come here to, to make it. And, and uh, Wow, that must have been a variety of dick jokes. Yeah, and, and if you tell them you're from there, they, they feel like, well, what have you given up to, to pursue this dream? You know, <laughs> you still have your life, you still have your family, your friends. Which is true, right. and also they don't realize, yeah, and that's a huge distraction because you moved here for this. You've got your day job, and you got this, and you get to do it seven nights a week. The rest of us, we still got to drive grandma to the airport. We still got to do all these things. It's a challenge doing comedy in the city you um, grew up in, and I see that up here because most of the comics up here are from up here. Right. There are some that move here, but I don't get that at all. I, I mean, if if you're moving to do comedy and you move here, yeah. That makes no sense to me. Move yeah. to L.A. or New York or, or even Chicago. Well, L.A. and New York, that's that's where you move to to do comedy. I, yeah. Hey, I, I said you know, that's a good, good observation. I don't understand it either. I think um, I think just people just really want to draw lines and compare themselves to other people. I don't know. Yeah, that's, I mean, 
and this is me with a 20 year sales background and you learn early it's not about you well in comedy it's not about you either it's about the audience now here's Ooh, the, the double edged sword to some people to some people it's about them well to most of them even the ones who do very very well whenever I hear a comic say why do you do comedy oh because I love to make people laugh I want to shoot myself in the head <laughs> Because, because I'm with you 100 percent, brother. Because I'm with it's you. N- it's it's you that then it's about excuse me then it's about you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. The comics that, that you love are the ones who walk on stage and you can tell they have something to say and they want you to share in what it is that's making them laugh. Like they want to share comedy with you, not make you laugh. It's such a huge distinction, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So. Anyway, uh, God, I could talk about L.A. versus San Francisco, the scene, just for hours and hours. Well, let's go the opposite. Way. What are some things that you you felt like you you had you learned since you started here in the Bay Area that you applied to your comedy? Well, I've learned everything here because I was not a good comic in L.A. Even though I was advancing in competitions down there and I was doing it regularly, I, uh, I mean, I feel for a comic. We all think funny thoughts and we are all struck by things that are funny and then we try and take that to the stage and realize we're not communicating the funny and you have to change your act and I think you can come become addicted to being clever and the technique and then evoking a laugh which you're gonna do that at the expense of saying something right like think about this you could walk up on stage pull your pants down and fart in the microphone and people would roar they would absolutely roar. They can't believe it. That doesn't make you a comic. The laugh isn't what makes you a comic. Mm. What makes you a comic is when you're connecting with people and you're telling them things they already know in a funny way. At least the way, this is the way I look at it. Right. Is that the Seinfeld school? No, Seinfeld's no. a little bit more set-up punch now, I think. I mean, I think it's Chappelle's school. Right. Well, the idea that you take what most people would, would think as mundane and really... Put on, you know, say Chappelle about can it. can tell you the story of how he got a limo ride from the club to his hotel, and the story could be ten minutes long and hilarious because of all the details he throws in, the funny details that he notices or and or makes up. Mm-hmm. But there's always going to be truth in it, and that's what a comedian does. And I I wasn't able to do that down in L.A., and I wasn't able to do it the first two or three years up here. And then I started hanging out with Mean Dave, who's probably the comic, showcase comic that I admire the most up here. Because he's so raw and authentic, and I've never heard him tell a joke in three years, but he will kill for 20 minutes because he just tells the story of his day and, and on the things that he notices that are hilarious that because uh, he's funny as a person, as a person, you, you when he talks, you, you just want to keep listening to him talk because he's got something to say, right? It's it's interesting, he's passionate, and uh, yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally agree. And this looks, uh, let's do another name drop, let's oppose this to say, uh, one of my other great friends up here, Noah Gain, who is constantly trying to craft a joke. And not realizing that the sillier his punchline is, and the more unrealistic it is, the more the audience won't connect with him. Now, he's going to get the laugh, the same laugh that you pull down your pants and fart into the microphone is going to get. But I've seen glimmers where he gets frustrated and he'll just insult someone to their face. And it's hilarious because it's genuine. Mm. 
And, uh, and that's what Dave brings every single time to the stage, this authenticity and this genuine, and you just, yeah, I don't know. Craft and technique now, put audiences off in my book. Why did you feel you had a hard time learning this lesson in LA uh, compared to here? Because like most comics when you begin, and I'm very sensitive. So as soon as I tell a joke that doesn't get a laugh, now I'm out of my zone. Now yeah. I'm out of my element. And now I'm sweating on stage and you can see it. And it just gets worse and worse. But I'm not a good, a good at improv at all. Like, I'm the kind of person who, if I think a funny thought, give me two or three minutes to just refine it in my head. You're a writer, man. I'm telling yes, you. Yes, of course. I'm a writer. And you're a writer, too. I'm the same way. Yeah. These people who say they write on stage, uh, good for you. Yeah. I could I, never do that. Same here. I, I freak out. Um. So wait, where was it? And I'm also lose my train of thought. Oh, very, sorry. Very, very, I interjected very, your train of thought. I very, apologize. very easily. Where were we? Uh, pretty much, I asked you is, why, why was it harder for you in LA to grasp this idea of, of authenticity and, and being genuine, um, genuine in, on stage? I did not have a comic, what is going to sound like a love letter, like Mean Dave to watch. Because when I first saw Mean Dave, he was... It was excruciating. I remember the first set I saw him at, uh, which was at uh, Jeff Ochoa's room, the Bamboo Lounge, and he went up and he just complained, and it wasn't funny for five minutes. And he spoiled the ending of a Tarantino movie during his set that I hadn't seen yet. I'm a huge Tarantino fan, and I'm like, this guy is a brain. He's he got there like an hour and a half early, sat by himself, and he's working on it. What I later realized is this guy has more commitment than ten any ten comics I know. But I just thought, what a weirdo. You know, I'm over here goofing and laughing with Ethan Orloff and we're whatever, goofing off and he's getting ready and he goes up and he bombs like crazy. It didn't affect him in the least because he was being genuine. He was telling and slowly and but surely he figured out just to tell the exact same story with some funny lines, with some funny inflections. And now it's it's like listening to a historian do comedy and mm-hmm. that he's going to give you lots of relevant facts. He's going to give you... Um, you know why he doesn't like certain people in the story or does and uh, it's all genuine and now he forced me to become more genuine and I'm, I'm not at his level of genuine I still will not be able to avoid a silly punchline every now and again but uh, every time I do that I say well Chappelle does that so <laughs> <laughs> so I can be silly occasionally has your creative process and developing a bit uh, changed or do you feel you still have like a routine? yeah completely now I only start with stories that have basis in truth before I, I would write setup punch jokes and uh, one-liners, and now it's everything I've written in the last six, eight months, a year, is stories peppered with funny, as opposed to laugh line every three seconds or ten seconds or mm. whatever. And I hope, I hope it's going to pay off. Um, every time I take the stage, now I am delivering what I think is funny, what's funny to me. And uh, the hardest part is is killing off the parts of the joke that amuse me the most, but audience never connect with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you edit yourself, and oh, it's so hard. You're like, I really love that punchline, or I really love that that detail, but you're like, people just get lost in that in those details yeah. sometimes, and then move on, and then move on. You know, I I always believe, and still believe to an extent, you don't need to kill a joke just because it's not working. Gary Shandling tells a story of one of his most famous jokes, and an interviewer asked him, how long did it take you to write that joke? It's six years. Yes. I, was, I was doing it one way for four years, and then I got a punchline one night. 
which is the big laugh of the joke. And uh, yeah, so it took me about six years, and it didn't bother him. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, that's a new new thing I'm trying to do now. Is like uh, it's like I'm going back to old jokes, and go like, all right, how can I apply this to what I have now? And yeah. how can I, you know do a little Frankenstein monster of a bit and and see how it all goes? And I, I'm just learning that now. I'm like, I have, I'm almost five years in. From when I started ten years ago, I have every bit I've ever done typed up and in my computer and cataloged, so I can go back and read it and find what's funny in it and redo it. One thing I, I I mean, even 10 years ago, there were bits that didn't work, but I still believe in them as much today as as I did then. Mm -hmm. But now I have the discipline to just cut out, hopefully separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And I'm so glad I saved all that material. I've never understood people who go up and do material and they write it on stage, they don't write it down and they forget about it and, and they haven't had a special yet. Like we're all working toward that first half an hour, one hour special that uh, will make a name for you and allow you to do stand-up comedy professionally. And to just stop doing bits because you're tired of them and they work or not even write them down, just forget about them. Yeah. All that wasted effort. You know what I mean? Well, you know, recently I've also listened to a couple of podcasts from a couple of comedians, like professional comedians. Mm -hmm. And that, there's a common theme that they're all... They all talk about when they talk about developing their specials, mm -hmm. is that they do the bits they do in the specials, like months after they're tired of those bits. Mm -hmm. So I, I was like, "Huh, oh, that's interesting." Pretty much what they're telling me is that that special they already had, they were tired of doing those jokes for a while, mm -hmm. and that's what made the special. Yeah. You know, and which which you know made me reflect. It's like, yeah, when I get tired of a joke, I just don't do them anymore. I just right. fuck it, forget about it. And that's the work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just throw, you're practically throwing away, you know, uh, parts of the machine they could use later. It, it's and uh, which is crazy, but it, it's completely understandable because before we ever decided to be comedians, we were fans of comedy. And once you've seen a comedy special, you don't want to watch. I mean, you will watch it again to study it, but you don't want to hear the same joke over and over. You want to hear new jokes from the same comedian. That's why we have to, you know, burn material. Right. They say if you want to do an hour special, you have to have another complete hour to tour behind it because now you're hot now. But they don't want to hear you do the same jokes. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, luckily, I think I have four hours of material now. I don't know how much of it anyone would like, but I know I have enough of it. I know I can go do 45 minutes. Right. right. And if you like my style of comedy, you're going to enjoy the whole 45 minutes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know that feeling. It's like I, I got like, you know, 45 to hour but i think only we got a hot five or something you know well and what what is the definition <laughs> of a hot five i you want to know my least favorite saying in comedy what's that it's never the audience's fault that drives me insane Why? because interesting because they're telling comedians look you have to learn to connect with any audience and be funny for any audience otherwise you're not a real comedian well let me ask you a question Jorge. Hmm. let's say that you're a fan of willie nelson music Sure. And you go to a Willie Nelson concert, sure. and out and it comes Insane Clown Posse, and they play the concert of their lives. Uh -huh. And you're going to walk out of there saying, that, that was terrible. Those guys shouldn't even be doing music. Huh. Willie Nelson music is what I like. Right, but if the Insane Clown Posse is playing good music, it's good music. Yeah, but you're not used to it. You've never heard that kind of music before. You like Willie Nelson, and it's just noise to you. Well, comedy is the same way. There are audiences that like the Big Bang Theory, and there are comedies that like Curb Your Enthusiasm, and they hate the other type of comedy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Right? So if I'm going to go and I'm going to... So essentially you're saying that people are being closed-minded. I'm saying that comics need to realize that there are a variety of tastes out there. Yeah. That there are so many people out there that would call Anthony Jeselnik, who I think is one of the brilliant joke writers of our time, uh, they would call him just a mean-spirited, unfunny person because they don't like that style of comedy. And they'll say, I like... uh, Who's the opposite? Uh, Who would be the opposite of Anthony Jeselnik? Seinfeld. Yeah, maybe Seinfeld. Okay. Yeah, maybe Seinfeld. Just putting it out there. Gaffigan, whatever. But as open mic comics, we'll go up and we'll do a show at Comedy Oakland. Yeah. And this may be one type of audience. And then you go do a show at some, uh, I mean, real comedy shows, but different different type of audience. What would be the opposite of, of a Comedy Oakland audience? Um, San Jose, Oakland. I mean, San Jose. I don't know. I think An Oakland and mic. San Jose are a little well, bit more, maybe a hardcore okay. San Francisco audience that only wants PC material. Right. And then uh, comedy Oakland audiences be more open to say club comics type of type of comedy, and and these comedians think I have to do great in front of every audience. I don't think you do. I think you have to do the best kind of comedy you do in front of every audience. Mm. Like what I've I've learned is, and, and I don't want to put down comedy Oakland because I've walked out of there many times after getting knocked out in the first round, and people will say, "Oh, you're like a dry British comedian. You're easily our favorite." But one of these bro comics who talk about their dating life the whole time, well, oh, they're roaring or set up punch comics. And right. and I go, if I if that was my act, look, you just won. You've got the $80 and 80% of this room loves you. If that was my act, I would kill myself because I don't like that kind of, that's not my kind of comedy. That's I appreciate it. It's not, it's not just not me. It's not the kind of comedy I like. Mm. Don't do that kind of comedy, right. I would think to myself. But they like it, and I'm, I'm understanding that it's like music. It's like musical taste. Right, right. So, Well, I think you're making some great points um, and a lot of great insight, and I think there's a lot of truth in that, in that you, you shouldn't cater to the audience necessarily. I think that's the point you're trying to make. It's like, don't do jokes that they want to hear necessarily. Do the jokes you want to say and try to make them work for, for the audience. However, I feel this saying of... The audience is never wrong. Is it's it, is never it, the audience's fault. Um, I think that still applies, but for different reasons. I, I think it's more of, of, a, of a mental game. Cause, because I feel that, uh, especially a lot of early comics, when they're bombing, there's just, they, they blame the audience for it. But I'm like, well, the audience just wasn't taking your stuff. doesn't mean your stuff is bad. Right. But don't take it personal what, if they're not being receptive what to I, it. What I mean by that is that it's never the audience's fault. It is that we've been trained that that we should entertain the audience. And we are there to entertain. Like I told you at the first, it's about them. It's not about us. I believe the audience comes first. I feel it's a balance of both. I, you know, like like you, you, you don't want to sell yourself to the audience necessarily because before I know it, you're doing hacky hold material. On, hold on. I'm, that's, I'm, we're saying the same thing. I think right. we're saying the same thing. You're doing it for the audience, but sometimes the audience is not going to be receptive to your type of comedy. That doesn't mean that you should try and change and be something you're not, because then what's going to happen is you're going to be this inauthentic comic who knows how to get laughs with any audience. And instead of going out and passionately delivering material that you believe in, that you think is funny, that you think is truthful, you're going to be weighing every audience. You're going to try this kind of joke and that kind of joke until you start getting the responses you want. And then what are you? You're this vanilla comic. You're this club comic. Right, right. And 
whose favorite comic is a is a generic club comic? Like right. who's your who are your favorite comics? Uh, currently, uh, well, currently. Oh, oh, yes, Bill Burr, big fan. Me big, too. Big fan of Bill Burr, Tom Segura. Yeah, you know, um, and but I see what you're saying. I think I, I agree with you 100. percent Like I, I just I guess what I'm kind of you know trying to say is that uh, the 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 saying. I, I don't think the saying of it's never the audience's fault, you know, is is a bad thing to say sometimes. That's all I'm saying. I think I think there's some truth in that too. But but I think what we're trying to get at here yeah. is that you, you should be authentic to your material regardless of, of the environment you're in, regardless of the crowd you're in. Yeah. You, I mean, and I totally get that. You know, there, there's some crowds I do better than others. And, and also, and here's a, maybe a... Uh, what was it? Uh, an addendum? No, not a. I don't know the word. I'm not good with vocabulary, which is weird for an English major. <laughs> for a reader, yeah, yeah. I'm um, a reader. It is nice to have many different bits from which to draw because when you find yourself in a crowd that you just know isn't going to get your references, for instance, mm-hmm. then it's better to have material that will have a better shot at right. it, like. Instead of like if I'm in a in a at a gig and it's sixty and seventy year old people, I can do my Hawaiian vacation material because if they're wealthier and they've been to Hawaii, they're gonna connect on some level. I'm not gonna do my Iggy Azalea material. And of course vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm in a if I'm in a room where people are into music, then I can I can do that bit. I can do my boys in the hood material and uh, and um, it's good to have a wide variety, but it's still gonna be my style of comedy. Uh, for better or worse, and it's just me trying to make the joke better. And I'm never, I, I seem to connect with about 30% of the audience. My friends who, who know me say, I'm a 30 70 comic. 30% of the people are going to really feel me yeah. and identify with what I'm doing, and 70% are going to go, this is, this is a guy with two heads. This is, uh, I don't understand what he's talking about. I just saw it last night at Best of San Francisco. I was uh, sitting next to a couple. It was completely sold out. So we had audience sitting next to where the comics usually sit. And I saw this couple not digging a couple of, let's put it, white dudes doing their Woody Allen-style comedy. They just they would laugh a little bit. Yeah. And then out came Brian Hicks, and he starts talking about teaching in Oakland, and he started doing some serious urban references, and they were doubled over laughing. Right. Now, the first two comics got big laughs from a white portion of the audience. Does that make anyone a better comic? Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. You, you connect with different people. So I go to a, a mixed audience where you have people anywhere from 18 to 50 or 60. You know, I'll, I'll connect with a certain percentage and not. And, uh, and these, these comics who talk about dating, like very, very basic premise stuff right seem to connect with everyone and I find it boring <laughs> mm. and so I wouldn't even want to do it I hear you I don't know <laughs> <laughs> Eric we reached the one hour mark oh okay we're there it went about pretty fast huh I yeah, felt it yeah get me started you know <laughs> me and Dave he can talk for five hours I drove to LA with him it'll wear you out did I wear you out <laughs> no not at all if yeah. anything I want, I want to learn more but yeah. you know 
Yeah, but we've reached our hour. We reached our hour, and hey, you can always come back. I'd love to hear more more of your insight. <laughs> and you can come back to my podcast. There'll be six of us. You'll get to talk for four minutes. It'll be. Uh, it'll do, be do you still have the audio files of, of this podcast? I never had them. One of our yeah. guys was was like you, good with yeah. the equipment and whatnot. I'm not good at he all. He had dude. everything. I'll, believe it or not, I'm winging it here. I have no idea. No, this is a pretty professional looking setup. <laughs> it, it's it's all like it's it. all. It looks good from the outside, but the inside it's chaos. Right. I'm like, oh shit! What button do I press again? Oh, there we go. Uh, but Eric Summers, thank you for coming. Good pleasure talking to you. Uh, do you want to plug in any social media details you want people to follow you in? Or? Yes, go to ericsummers.com, and uh, and then don't give a bad review. I don't know. How do you? What do you say? Do can people review you in your website? I mean, they could go on Yelp if they wanted to. I suppose. What? Can you review performers on I Yelp? think if you hate something enough, you could figure out a way to give it a bad review. Well, on Twitter. There you you go. know what I'm saying? Like, fuck that guy. Actually, 30% of you go on, you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> Seven of you, not so 70% much. 70% of you are going <laughs> to... Go see my short film. It's the thing I'm most proud of in, in my life. It's a five-minute long short film. Uh, I would say closer to 80% of the people hate it, uh-huh. but I love it. What's the short film about? It's about an old man who's bitter at the world. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I could relate so much besides being uh. the old man. <laughs> All right. We've worn your audience out, I'm sure. All thank right, you thank, very much. Thank you, Eric. That was the one and only Eric Summers. Catch him at your local comedy showcase, either in San Jose uh, or San Francisco or anywhere else in the Bay Area. You never know. All right, that's it for this week. Have a great Sunday. Take care, everybody. Next week, our main guest is going to be a musician who is from South Africa. Had a real great talk with her. So stay tuned for that. All right, that's it. Let's get out of here. It, it is getting late. I'm recording this like at midnight, and uh, I am ready for some sleep. Well, I guess in your case, you'll be hearing this in the day. I might still be asleep, though. All right. Bon voyage.